Hello and welcome to another Be Your Own Loud podcast slash live stream brought to you by all of us here at Proudmouth. I'm Matt Haller and your host. First, I'd like to give a quick shout out and a welcome to all of the people watching us all over the social media world, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. Thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. This show has a very simple foundation to meet amazing people who have risen above the noise, are unapologetically themselves to become their own loud. Using these interviews as your inspiration, our purpose to help you amplify your voice, to help you become the subject matter expert that you are meant to be. Today, our guest is Chris Neeland. He is the co-founder of Cult Collective, a magnificent author of a book called Fix, The Gathering, and also Communo.com. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Be your own loud. So, Chris, you started Cult Collective, and a lot of it's based off of your and Rob Howard's thought leadership, Rob Howard being your partner, the co-founder of Cult Collective, and also the co-author of your book. Tell me a little bit about what happened and what you guys were planning on doing to truly interrupt the advertising and marketing industry. Rob, at the time, referred to it as a new species of agency, which I really enjoyed because it wasn't just a new methodology. It wasn't just a new framework or a different pricing model. It was an absolutely different uh, belief system or what we've now come to call an ideology and a whole different set of behaviors, which did manifest in different ways to win business, different ways to price business, creating IP. The reality is most agencies don't really have IP, they have talent, but if you have IP, then you can put anybody into that role and they can deliver it, if, if they can deliver it competently. And so we didn't wanna become about some rockstar creative director or copywriter. We wanted to be about a methodology that would be, a, that uh, was based on data, vetted by research, uh, super Super compelling and topical, which I think cult brands are just becoming increasingly vogue because other institutions are failing and our brands are kind of stepping up to be our church or to be our, our social club or to be our, in some cases, our governing bodies. I love the fact that businesses, if they rise to the challenge or if they seize the opportunity that's before them, they could be a lot more than just a functional you know, provider of goods and services. Yeah. Wow. Now, when I was uh, participating in, in the gathering the last week, the lineup was insane. I mean, yeah. you had Land Rover, Barbie, the guy who did, did Rory start Ogilvy? I mean, I mean, Rory was the first thing that I, I watched your guys' opening that I went, went right into Rory's room, but it didn't start off that way. And I want to talk a little bit about the history of, of the gathering itself and what it's turned into, because I think when you and, your team sat down and you inked it out and said, Hey, this is uh, this is what I really want it to turn into. Did it turn into that or even more? Yeah, I don't think in day one, the one thing the gathering has always had from the beginning is the world's most iconic brand leaders telling their stories. We were very nervous. Cult as an agency or an advisory firm now that we call ourselves, us trying to tell people to do things is inherently biased because I want people to pay me to help them do it better, right? right? And so I, I only have so much credibility. If I can put the head of that year one, we had Las Vegas, we had the Red Bull, we had the Saskatchewan Riders, we had Harley Davidson. So I'm like, if, if they're saying it, 
then the question should not be, is this a good idea or not? The question is, is it applicable to me? Do I want to pursue that path? How would I do those types mm-hmm. of things? And if they need some help from us, God bless you. Really from day one, the, the lineup of celebrity brand leaders who took the stage was always very impressive. And that was always, I think, a shock to us that we were able to, because we just asked. I mean, that just kind of goes to show you the the idea that as an industry, as a creative industry, we're so distracted celebrating the creative or the agency producers of that, that the leaders are kind of left there saying, well, doesn't anybody want to know my story? So it wasn't that hard to get people to say, you know, we're really proud of what we're doing and nobody's asking. And in some cases, if it's like some of the brands in the early days, they're just not huge advertisers. And the industry is sort of set up to celebrate campaigns, the best campaign of the year, the biggest media buy of the year, whatever, all the trophies, the cons, lines, the golden pencils, the anvils, whatever you call them. So it's really an agency fest where agencies are talking to other agencies and sometimes the clients and certainly the results take a big back seat to just the funness of the idea. So I'm very proud of the fact that from the beginning, it's always lived up to the idea of sit at the feet of iconic cult brand leaders, hear their stories, ask them your questions. That was the other big part of it was the interactivity. Because we always imagined if you loved movies, getting a ticket to the Oscars would be pretty cool. But getting into a workshop the day before the Oscars where the Steven Spielberg was there to tell you why he made these choices would be even better if you really wanted to geek out on movies, right? So there was always this idea of not just celebration. It, we never wanted it to be just another award show. We wanted it to be about inspiration and education that is culminated with a trophy and a gala and, and an award show. So I think all of that stayed true. I think what has been pleasantly surprising is We went into it very much thinking about companies, most of the time B2C companies. So expanding it into B2B brands, bolting on charities and nonprofits, bolting on personalities, destinations. Like there's a lot of things that are are cult-like that aren't just S&P 500 kind of companies. There's just something about how you engage with people to create not just awareness, but advocacy that is pretty remarkable. And way too many people are focused on awareness. It's like, why? That is inferior to advocacy. You can't be an advocate of something you're not aware of, but you can be, you don't have to advocate things that you are aware of. And so it's like, if you go for advocacy, you get awareness plus something else. And that's always sort of been at the root of, guys, why aren't you just doing what these guys are doing? Because it's awesome. And they're so liberal in telling how to do it. They're not like keeping these secret. Yeah. Well, and that's what I thought was so fantastic about the event itself is the level of transparency. I mean, you had these inner sanctums that allowed schmucks like me to talk to huge people who I look up to in real time and have get real feedback on ideas or or anything. And that, that was just un, unreal. Now, yeah, I, I just listened to, I just listened to, so I, I, there's four sessions of content at any given hour. So the FOMO is real and I was in some other session when Barbie spoke. So I had a chance this morning to go back and listen to Barbies. And she did one of the most popular things, which is go head first into the uh, vulnerability and the mistakes. She did not shy away from the body image issues of Barbie. And I think that's what people want to, you know, yes, their story is amazing regardless, but when you talk about the tough choices, when you talk about the missteps, when you talk about the should have dones, boy, can brand leaders get a lot from I remember Gatorade did that. I remember the head of Big Rock Brewery started his speech by saying, 
I'm happy to tell you my story, but let me warn you, this is not a happy ending. People have lost their jobs, shareholders have lost value. And it was like how you recover from, from the missteps is oftentimes even more valuable learning than just kind of trying to copy the successes. Have you always been capable of being the voice? Like in your past life, before you came to where you are today, have you always felt like you were okay with being your own loud? I mean, you said you, you kind of talked about a little bit about the beginning, but when did that epiphany happen? And you're like, you know what? I am going to be on stage. I am going to start speaking my mind and my truths on these things. Yeah, I, I certainly I've never been a shrinking violet, if that's what you're asking. I am I'm I am loud and obnoxious. I think where I became more vocal was in my growing frustration. And I listen, I'm a Texan, which is the most obnoxious of all the Americans. And so a Texan living in Canada, I am Ooh. frequently misunderstood or a, a bit offensive or something just because I'm unapologetically blunt about things. I don't couch it in the politeness and the the niceties. You know, I kind of took Subway to task in my speech and somebody <laughs> chatted, well, I guess Subway won't be coming next year. And it's like, I hope they do because I yeah. consider myself like if, if you're a good sports analyst and you, you can crap on the Chicago Cubs, you can say that they're not pitching well, you can say that the management is suck. It doesn't mean that you hate the Chicago Cubs. It means that you're, call, you're, you're calling people out and holding them to a higher bar. I try to do that. And I, I'm sensitive to the fact that that maybe puts some people off. And I've tried to find different styles of, of provocateurs and thought leaders, but it, sometimes it's just not authentic to me. Sometimes I can't help myself, but just jump into the fight or say something yeah. or to poke the bear. We certainly have lost, we, we lost an honorary this year to The Gathering, who took some offense to something I posted on social media, which kind of shocked me because I, I meant no ill intent, but there's casualties to that sort of loud, but I hope I've learned from cult brands who are unapologetically, you know, Nike putting Kaepernick on a billboard knows that that's going to turn some people off. Absolutely. I try not to vanilla myself down to where everybody can find some value. I want to find the edges and allow people that are, that are already determined to create change. I want to be that sort of personal coach or that personal trainer that's going to be there at 6 a.m. yelling at you to get out of bed and say, let's go to the gym. We got to go. Yeah. Now, you have a tribe now. I mean, like, and Rob and I have talked about that. Uh, we've talked about that in working with Rob. Cults got their own tribe. Tell me about that. How did that happen? How long did it take when you guys checked the box and said, hey, we're going to create this cult collective thing? How long did it take for you guys really to feel like you had built a tribe? I, I still feel like I'm building it. But there's an epicenter kind of from Calgary outward. Maybe the tribe resonates or, or seems a bit more vocal or real Western Canada. But you go to Toronto and you realize that you're a pretty small fish in a big pond. You go to New York or Chicago, you're even a smaller fish in an even bigger pond. I do subscribe to the idea of a thousand true fans. So mm -hmm. there are people who lift us up when we're feeling down. There's people who embolden us or cheer us on to go even further faster. I still feel like we're a sapling and uh, we have decades of growth still ahead of us before there's any sense that we've sort of arrived. Now, you've talked about from a tactic perspective, I remember when you were talking about Subway and and it did come up in the chat 
And again, like today, I hope they come. I think every one of the comments that you made was wildly valid, right? And and as a business owner, I would love to get that sort of real honest feedback. But have you found that that's your most successful engagement tactic? When you look at the rubber meets the road, how have you grown? What has been the thing that has gotten you guys to the notoriety that you're at right now? Well, certainly not the gathering. I mean, the get that was that was our intention when we birthed it for the first year. It was sort of cults coming out party, and we thought it was going to be a one and done. And when we realized that what just transpired was pretty sacred, we said, if we're going to do it again, A, we need some help because it's expensive and hard to do. So we need partners that can help us. And B, it must be held sacrosanct. So there's a, no, there's a non-solicitation policy for the participants who are being honored oh. at the gathering. We just honored Netflix, Amazon, Land Rover, Shopify, all these great brands. We don't get to talk to them about working with them. That, that's sort of the the price of entry to say, if we're going to create an industry event, then it cannot be a sales thing. And so the gathering has turned into an amazing event and a pretty lousy business development tool for us. So actually, we always struggle with how much should we make it obvious that we did this? Because I would hope that some brands would say, damn, if they could do that, then they could help us with our thing. But they would have to connect those dots themselves. And the other thing that's been wildly disappointing is our book. I think the if you take the amount of effort that's required to research and write a book versus how many phone calls I've gotten saying, I've read your book, would you be willing to come consult with us? It's pretty piss poor. No, I think, frankly, the biggest game changer for the growth of our advisory firm has been following the, the sage advice of Blair Enns and his win without pitching methodology, which was, so again, going back to Blue Ocean, if we're not an ad agency and we're not a business consultancy and we just cherry pick the good and avoid the bad, one of the worst is RFPs and, yeah. and the way that agencies are solicited for multi-year agency of record retainers. So we left that on the wayside. We said Colt will not play that game, which then required us to create different ways into businesses. And so we don't wait for a company to decide that they're sick and then go seek a prescription or go shopping for a doctor, right? We, we try to paint a picture of what healthy businesses look like so that astute business owners can draw their own conclusions. Well, I'm not that way. Why aren't my staff that engaged? Why, why am I spending so much money on paid media? Why do I have to constantly bribe people? to come in with discounts so that they can say, oh, I just thought that was business as usual. I just thought that was a requirement. And we say, no, no, that's not a requirement. That's that's the requirement for mediocre brands. But there's a whole other genre of company out there called a cult brand. And if you want to behave like them, then you can avoid all that crap. It's interesting that you bring up the, because we, the book was transformative to our business, right? I mean, Kirk left the gathering, whatever it was a year, two years ago. I don't remember what it is now. He's like, dude, you have to read this book. And I, people who haven't gotten access to that book, which we'll make sure goes in show notes and all of that stuff for here, I know I can feel how much you put into that. And I think it's absolutely phenomenal. But I also found, dude, sometimes books 
are good business cards, but they're not always as easy to transport as something like I, you guys do videos. I know that you guys have done TED Talks, podcasts, the, the communal platform it was a very interesting way to, to communicate all of that. But I want to talk about your specific influence. So we're going to we're going to bypass the, the cult collective and, and the gathering. I want to talk about Chris now. When you look at being an influencer, because you are right. What is your biggest struggle? Like how, what, what is the biggest issue that you have in getting your voice out there and, and, and maintaining the level that you've already achieved as of now, which is, you know, as humble as you've been, you actually have amazing notoriety. I mean, the simple fact that people, you call up Land Rover or Land Rover calls you to be at one of your events. It's kind of a big deal, dude. So what is your biggest struggle? Is it time, scale, is it content? Is it engagement? What are the things that you struggle with as an influencer? It's a great question. I'm just thinking about it. I, I don't really care so much about consumption metrics. So when I do, if I put something out there, the least interesting thing to me is how many people saw it. I care about did it bear fruit in a meaningful way where somebody's now going to action it. I, in a perfect world, they'd action it with my help. But I, I'm almost as excited about just other stories of, Chris, I read your book, I saw your thing, I follow you, and I fired my business partner, or I changed my company, or I quit my most, – most often what happens is people quit their jobs uh, because they realize they're, they're just not part of a cult brand, and they want to be, and so they go and apply. So sure. I, I, I find a lot of personal satisfaction in knowing that people are getting on better paths to, to find more self-fulfillment. Uh, but I think my challenge is it's the difference between simple and easy, right? You can read a lot of books about how to ride a bike, but it doesn't mean you're going to know how to ride a bike. It's, it's simple to understand the concept, but it's hard to do. A better metaphor would be losing weight. I was just reading a thing about obesity being the number one comorbidity in COVID deaths. And it's like, hey, for decades, we have understood we need to lose weight. We need to be healthy. So it's simple to understand, eat right, exercise more, but it's hard, hard to do, right? And that sort of willpower, that discipline, whatever pre-existing conditions were there. So I, as, a, as a person that's not trying to be an influencer, but a person who is trying to influence change, how to help people go from the mental mind shift of, yeah, I should do that, to the physical work required Particularly when my competitive set, the the agency industrial complex is make is selling quick weight loss pills. Yeah. Right? They're making it seem easier than it is. Let's just that that problem's going to go away if you just give me a little bit more money for a Super Bowl commercial or a print ad or whatever it might be. So I have to sort of do a constant compare and contrast and acknowledge my way is not the easier way. But it's the only quote unquote real way for substantive long-term profitability. And that's why I mentioned in my speech about how many businesses are failing. Like, why don't we just look at the people that are taking those pills and see how well they're doing and look at the people that are trying other things, the cult brands that we put on stage, and it should become pretty obvious. Which path are you going to pursue? But it's not, unfortunately. And so, yeah. you know, when I showed that graph, Matt, marketing paid advertising has gone from 130 to 300 billion in the past decade. That is a get me out of bed every morning reminder that I am failing miserably at my job <laughs> because until that, you know, uh, trend shifts and we start spending less and less, then 
people are becoming addicted to these quick weight loss pills. We suffer from that too. The way that our system works is we're we're a long-term marketing. I mean, so we're we're build momentum over time because we're going to help you create your own cult-like brand within your your area of expertise so that people seek you out as that guy or that lady who is the expert in that specific niche, that vertical, right? And I get the same sort of stuff. In fact, I just had an email from a, a prospective client who called me wanted to buy our product. He's like, Hey, I'm ready to go. And when I told him about the momentum aspect, he's like, no, I think what I want to do is I want something that's going to give me a faster ROI. And I'm like, how do you even overcome that objection? That's philosophically so out of line with, with all of what we said, if you consume our content, right. Going in that direction just seems like, did you really listen? So uh, anyway, I'm right there with you, brother. I, I don't, that short sightedness when it comes to growth is one of the reasons why companies like Subway, right. Have hit major plateaus or major roadblocks. And then you look at somebody like, like a Land Rover, the funniest thing, so I, I, I'm a huge, I know you actually have a Land Rover. Uh, I've owned three, two in the past, right? They're early discos. And the first thing that the guy from Land Rover said was, nobody needs a Land Rover. <laughs> like, oh, that's such a cult brand thing to say, right? He's like, look, and most people who buy our cars don't ever take them off road. And I was like, oh my God, that's exactly that's how I view them, and that's what they live. And I, I just thought that was really cool. Okay, I, sorry about the digression. Well, let, let, let me well, let yeah. me chime in on one thing because it's it's probably the most recent stream of consciousness I've been pursuing, which is the time horizon of of achieving culthood. Because I really want to combat the belief that you can either have quick wins, immediate success, and risk fizzling out. Or you have to go slow and steady to win the race, and it's going to take years and years. Because that's not actually true. And it wasn't until I stumbled upon an interview with Elon Musk, who painted a picture for me. I think it was maybe on, I don't know, maybe it was on Joe Rogan or something like that. But he, he basically talked about the speed of adoption has a whole lot less to do with your marketing prowess and what you choose to do, content marketing, paid advertising, earned media, whatever, it's that's all a distant second to the provocativeness and disruption of your actual offering. I mentioned the thing about ranch dressing in my speech, right? Like if you're going to launch a ranch that has 20% more peppercorn, you're either going to have to spend an exorbitant amount of money to get a bunch of people to, to stop doing what they're doing today and try the new one. Or you're going to have to sign up for a decade-long, slow and steady word of mouth. People will eventually realize more peppercorn is better. But I remember being in the boardroom of uh, General Mills when the person who invented Gogurt, Gogurt was the new squeezable tube for yogurt. And that was an instant overnight success. And it had nothing to do with the quality of the yogurt. It was the distribution device. But it was, and it didn't require hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising. Like if you have a game changer, if you've reimagined how that yogurt, you no longer need a spoon. And people thought it was for children. It, most people that ate it were actually uh, women driving to work that didn't want to have to spill yogurt on their outfits going in. And that's how Tesla was. Tesla was a game changer in the automotive space. It wasn't just a 20% better car. It was a 200% better car. So I think of a lot of clients that want to have more immediate success, then don't look to your ad agency to come up with a more provocative media plan. 
Go to your product development team or your customer experience team. Say, what are we going to do that completely changes the rules of the game? Because that can take off tomorrow. Airbnb was essentially an overnight success story. Shopify was a, or a Shopify and Spotify. I mean, these are companies in, in less than 10 years, and that's really unicorn status, right? Getting sure. to a billion dollar valuation as fast as possible. That's because those are game changers. Those aren't just mediocre products with better marketing. Yeah. If you were able to do it all over again, which a lot of us would say, I'm not doing that. But if you went back and you were able to talk to your younger self with, with advice, what, what would you, what would you, what would you tell yourself? It took me too long to be comfortable with entrepreneurship. I had to learn how to be an entrepreneur. It's not in my DNA. I wish I had respected that as a skill and as a discipline more than just a description. Like I always kind of thought you were an entrepreneur because you were self-employed as okay. opposed to I'm an entrepreneur the way somebody becomes a doctor. Like I, I proactively sought it out. I got the training required to do it and to excel at it. I, I was too late and I'm still learning, but I think just entrepreneurship in general. Yeah, I mentioned this idea of Brene Brown challenging us to be courageous or to be comfortable. They can't coexist in the same uh, sentence. I think my ratio of courage days to comfortable days is off. I'm probably 70% comfort, 30% courageous, and I probably should be more 50-50 or maybe 60-40. I, I personally don't do well thriving in a daily space of courage. I don't have the stomach for it. But the best things in my life that have happened have been the result of the most courageous things. So, you know, that old platitude of do one thing every day that scares you. Yeah. I think we need to reimagine what that really means. A, it's probably not every day, but certainly once a week or once a month. And then what are we talking about scares you? I don't mean like trying kale for the first time. I'm talking about place a bet that would have that, that, yeah. that intentionally pivots the trajectory of your business. Because we're just starting to do that now, and it's both terrifying and, and, and thrilling because we're not where we want to be, and we don't want to rest on our laurels. And so we have to constantly find ways to get really uncomfortable again. What is one thing that you wish that you would be able to communicate in a convenient manner? And I'm, I'm just challenging you to actually take what you just said and make it a little bit more succinct. So if you were able to wave a magic wand and say, you know what, my audience of people who pay attention to who I am and what I do, if I could give them one gift, what would that gift be? What would you want your audience to get? Either it's an epiphany or, or a full philosophical change. What, what would that be? It goes back to, I think, the theme of the past week at the gathering, which is to, to live with greater courage. I, I think that most people aspire to get to a place of comfort, and it should be the opposite. We should aspire to get to a place where I can take more risks. I've achieved a level of financial independence. I've achieved a level of confidence. I've achieved a level of maturity in my relationships, whatever it is. So that And, and my, my favorite people I'm always fascinated by sort of independently wealthy people who can do anything. And most notably, they could do nothing. They could just sure. play, but they choose to keep going. And it's like, where do they get that motivation? Like you see a boxer that steps into the ring that already has a hundred million dollars 
and they're going to go risk getting their butt kicked again. Yeah. And the six months of training that's grueling. It's like, how do you get that dry? I get it when you're a poor street kid and the only way out yeah. of the bad neighborhood is to kind of make it. But I am more fascinated by the 40-year-old or the 35-year-old who says, despite this level of success, I have a drive and a determination because I'm not by the only people I'm playing. It's like I'm starting to learn how to do golf. It's a fascinating sport because it's the first sport I've ever played where I'm just competing against myself. Because sure. even in track or swimming, right, you're still racing somebody else. Yes, you're going for your own best time, but golf is really just this game of do you have the willpower to try to get better at this for your own benefit? You don't have the you don't have the peer pressure of your teammates that are trying to pull you along, or the the guilt that you might feel if I can't slack, so I don't want to let them down. It's just you. It's just your score, and it's a light. And it's kind of a it's a different part of the brain. I wish more people had that self motivation to say, "I screw this. I'm never going to settle." Another Blair in is, and you should get him on your podcast. He's a brilliant man. But he he introduced me to this idea of never retire. So many of us think that we're just working towards 65 or maybe early retirement so that then some element of my life can be better. It's like, that's just yeah. a flawed, we're not working in coal mines escaping right. the black lung, right? They need to retire. We're doing high, high value intelligence work at a desk that you could do until your 80s, maybe your right. 90s. My kids might live into their hundreds, right? I mean, the mm -hmm. average. And so let's get over this mindset of deferred happiness and just living our best selves now and retire every year from something that you don't enjoy. So by the time you're 50 or 60, why would you ever quit? You're just doing the stuff yeah. that you love. Yeah, and that's such an amazing gift. And it's a gift that you can give to yourself. And I think that that permission is something that more people need to take time and take a really hard look at who they are and what they're doing and what they really want to do and, and start making a longer term plan to give up the things that they shouldn't. Now, when it comes to people who you would want to work with, one of the things that I want to kind of do as a thank you for all of your freaking wonderful thought leadership on our podcast today, if somebody the right person to call you and say, Chris, you know what? Hey, I, I, I'm really ready to work with you. What, what does that person look like and, and how, what is the best way for them to reach out to you and your team? We like receiving two types of phone calls. One from the head of marketing, whether that's a VP of marketing or CMO, whatever the title is, is dependent on the size of the organization. But that person saying, I'm in, I'm curious, I'm humble enough to be to say maybe something about what you're saying is accurate curious if it could be applied to our business would you be willing to test something so most of our engagements are not wholesale stop everything you're doing here and start everything here we we, we use a lot of drug metaphors but it's like we help people wean themselves off and, and go through a proper rehabilitation. We want to avoid negative side effects or withdrawal symptoms. We saw that like with JC Penney's a few years ago, right? The new leader came in, it worked for the Apple stores, it worked for Target, so let's now, but they, it nearly put the brand into cardiac arrest. I like the idea of test your way in. It means smaller engagements and shorter term engagements, but I'm so confident in the outcome I don't need you to say we're going to give you, you know, three years and $5 million. Give me six months and $100,000. Like, let's just sure. start testing something, right? So I really like when a marketing leader says, I've got all this money uh, that we're spending on either mass media markdowns. I'm curious if you could spend it better. <laughs> or we love it usually when a board has fired the CEO 
and brought the new CEO in with the mandate to turn it around because yeah. this business is failing. So when they're in that state of necessity is the mother of invention and they're willing to make hard choices, we love it when that new CEO will pluck us and say, come along with me. We got to change everything. The positioning of the brand, the pricing, sure. the distribution, the culture, the HR practices, right? We, we like the invasiveness of that because that's substantive. That's mm -hmm. not, hey, take this media budget and make me better. That's reorganize the company. That's, let's kill product lines. Let's, let's create a, a new joint venture with somebody or a new strategic alliance because that in my mind is marketing with a capital M, yeah. not just marketing communications, which is what frankly, we, we did some research, 500 publicly posted job descriptions for VPs of marketing or above. This was in the book and it was 90%. 90% Matt was mostly manage agency relationships and manage our storytelling. And it's like marketers have become storytellers, which there is a time and a place for story. I'm not anti-story, but that should be what the advertisers do or the market communications people do. Marketers should be about value propositions, value creation. And uh, who's doing that if the marketers are, are distracted putting together, you know, social media posts? Yeah. Uh, that, that's a freaking awesome question. Do they go to website, pick up the phone? Yeah, sure. Cultideas.com where you can consume some of this ideology. You can see our case studies and you can solicit some more information. You can also do a, your own cult brand scorecard. So we ask you six or seven questions and you can do a really quick evaluation. They, some people like to think that they're the exception. It's very rare, frankly, to find a, an exception. There are some. The, the more commoditized and the more pedestrian, so like energy is a good example. Toilet paper, although I loved the the, the speech from, do we, did you hear the Kruger products story? I did uh, not. I mean, just imagine if you're marketing toilet paper. I mean, your job is kind of mundane. And yeah. then all of a sudden your product becomes the most valuable commodity on the planet last March. And yep. they cannot keep it on the shelf. I mean, what an, what an amazing sort of shock and awe. You got to get a masterclass in, in marketing and not just marketing, but just supply chain. They, they were making paper towels and napkins and as everything got converted over to make more toilet paper. And it's just sort of a, it's something that I don't think people often think about. Like that would be a fascinating, in my mind, movie. Like I want to yeah. watch that documentary yeah. of what, what if your job was, yeah, I think maybe, and it wasn't the case, but I kind of picture this pretty posh nine to five job with not too much drama. It's a good problem to have, but it's a problem nonetheless yeah. when there's no, your product's not on the shelves anymore. Yeah. Well, we'll make sure that we have all of the, that uh, information in our show notes, Chris. First off, thank thank you for everything that you guys put together last week. I know you've got a hell of a team for the gathering. We just put up a, a link so that people can can order the book. We just also made sure that we put up the link to the website. I'm really, really hoping that you get some more traffic. The easiest thing for everybody who's listening is, is start with the book. It is unbelievable how it is going to... Um, chat very soon everything that you think about marketing and we really really needed to do that because uh living in the financial services space chris which we've lived in for 20 years <laughs> nothing changes dude right people are still doing the same crap they did in the early 1900s to be brutally honest we really wanted to try to shake everything up and, and i believe that we have been able to do that because of because of the book and because of your guys help so well, that's truly, truly really good. really f rewarding to hear so thank you for not only reading it and applying it, but then kind of closing the loop and letting me know about it, it, it does make it worthwhile. 
Well, thanks, brother. Well, thanks for joining us today. We hope that you've learned something that will help you be your own loud and rise above the noise in your vertical of expertise. At Proudmouth, we help you sell less and advise more by amplifying your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans who will chase you down instead. When people opt into your thought leadership, the sales process changes from hard selling to people buying from you. Isn't that what we all want? If you guys want to know more about who we are and what we do, please go to proudmouth.com and also our new Influencer Accelerator Academy, which is actually what's bringing this live stream to you today is Influence Accelerator Academy. And we'll hopefully see you guys all on the other side of the mic very soon. Thank you for listening to Be Your Own Loud, where we reverse engineer success to help you accelerate your influence and break free from the torment of sales. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to our podcast, share with others in your company or profession, follow us on social media. This podcast is brought to you by Proudmouth, the Influence Accelerators. Visit us at proudmouth.com and join our Influence Accelerator Academy for free to enhance your marketing mindset and know-how.